0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Um, we are coming at you today with another guest, I'm proud to say. And this is a new guest, a shiny out of the box guest who we've never had on our podcast before. So I'd like to um, introduce you to and welcome Sean Davis Barnes to our lovely podcast. Welcome, Sean. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Thanks <laughs> for the invitation to be here today. And Sean Davis Barnes joins us from the primary team, which I think is going to be really important for today's episode because we are looking at the ins and outs of improving behaviour in schools, focusing specifically on the Education Endowment Foundation's 2019 report entitled Improving Behaviour Behaviour in Schools, believe it or not.
1: And we think this is really important right now because this is coming out early in the academic year. All of our student teachers have just disappeared out on placement as we record this. And of course, uh, anyone who's been on a teacher training course will know that one of the things that keeps you awake at night early on is the idea of having to manage behaviour in the classroom. So this one, if you're new to the classroom as a trainee teacher right now, this one is for you.
0: Absolutely. And um, we've got a nice opening quote here from the report. I thought it might be a a good initial conversation starter. There is much research on the ramifications of poor pupil behaviour on the school learning environment. It is one of the most difficult tasks that both experience. And new teachers have to contend with in schools and one of the perennial issues that affects teacher
2: retention. What are your thoughts on that, Sean? Well, I don't think it really matters whether you're a student teacher or somebody who's been teaching a number of years every year. You have new children coming into your classroom, they're all different, and they bring different challenges and different experiences with them, and you have to be ready to adopt new new approaches perhaps and new ideas. So yes. it it doesn't get any easier. You just rise to the challenge each year.
1: (laughs) And we should take a moment, I think, to salute the brilliant Education Endowment Foundation. We're just finding them more and more to be a source of great information for practising teachers.
0: Yeah, and um, what they've done is they've, they've created a report that's got lots of practical advice, but also lots of wider research. So what I think the gift of this report is is that there are lots of different levels of entry and engagement that you can you can take in response to this report so if you're busy they've produced um, a really good summary of recommendations that you can print out and have as a poster on your on your pin board if you want to and you could use it as a conversation starter in your teams or you know if you're in university it could be in and around reflection it could be a nice um, catalyst for deeper reflection on what's going on in the classroom so if you haven't got time you can you can dip into it in that way but if you have got a bit more time it's got some lovely recommendations some nice visualizations um, and practical tools for supporting reflection and it's got some links to additional research articles for you to have a look at if you so wish so multiple points of entry in this one report
1: And the EEF, a great tool if you're needing to go and have a difficult conversation with someone above you in a school, I often find, you know, you need to drag together some evidence for something that maybe you want to introduce or some money that you want for something. It's just all there. They crunch enormous amounts of information down into very, very accessible formats, which are just fab. So, EEF, we love you.
0: Yes, we do. Thank you. So, the report is broken down into kind of three sections. There are six recommendations. The general kind of structure is how to prevent proactive strategies for for preventing poor behaviour, poor behaviours for learning um, in our classrooms, how to deal with bad behaviours. So reactive strategies and the importance of consistency and coherence in policies, so kind of implementation from a, a leadership perspective. What we thought would be the best angle for our, particularly for our student teachers, to have a look at some of those proactive strategies and how they can prepare to develop positive behaviour for learning in their lessons and improve behaviour in their lessons and how they might implement strategies in the moment when they're in the class and they've got, I don't know, what would the equivalent to year nine on a Friday, period five, be in a primary
2: setting, Sean? I don't think it's about really any time of the day or any one year group. I think normally within a primary school, there is the class yeah. Um, and you're sort of when when you're coming up to the end of an academic year, people start to say, "Oh, you're having the class next year," and of course, as in a primary setting, you're with those children every lesson all year. So, um <laughs> so the, that, the class might be your class, yes,
1: <laughs> and very much as we say to the secondary student teachers. It's far better to be proactive than reactive, isn't it? You don't want to be reacting to behaviour all the time. So I think it's great that when you dig into this EEF report, they've got an awful lot that you can do before you even have to touch a classroom management, behaviour management strategy in your room.
0: Yeah, which leads us on to recommendation number one, which is know and understand your pupils and their influences. Before we look at the guidance, I mean, I know what I think, but we've got a lovely guest here. How important would you say that, is, Shan in a primary context, knowing and understanding the pupils and their influences?
2: I think it's absolutely essential. Children come to school with various experiences, um, not just in terms of their academic development, but things that are going on outside of the school that you might not um, straight away be aware of children who might be facing very difficult circumstances at home which are having an impact on the way that they behave in class and it's important then obviously to try and find out as much as you can about what's happening. So, speaking, hopefully, it's al- there's already been a form of communication with the previous teacher, mm. with the uh, ALNCO, for example, as well. As um, the additional learning needs coordinator for those who aren't uh, Wales
1: <laughs> speaking the lingo.
2: Sorry. <laughs> a, thank you very much, Emma, for <laughs> <That's> that. <okay. laughs> um, But trying to find out as much as you can about about that child and then maybe noting some of the behaviours, just keeping a a little note of of what's happening in class so that you can go and seek advice and seek help. And eventually that could lead to a parental consultation Mm. um, to try and, and understand more about Um, this child's behaviour but absolutely essential to know your children well
0: which is um quite reassuring i think for for student teachers in initial teacher education and particularly on our program we give them quite a lot of time and space at the start of the year to to watch to observe to listen to ask questions to reflect and to give them that space to get to know the learners. You know, they're developing their their reflective practice and, and they need that time to get to know and understand the learners. Something that I really like that this report advocates is it says at teacher level regularly and intentionally focusing small amounts of time working on relationships with individual pupils can have a big impact this could be as simple as asking about their weekend or how their football team is performing i know it can be quite nerve-wracking for student teachers going into the environment where the teacher has been working with those pupils perhaps for for a long time or they might have taken them on as new but they seem from from a student teacher's perspective they seem to have already built a really good relationship with them what this does is it says to our student teachers just just ask them questions just get to know them you know it doesn't all have to be focused on Dare I say it? Progress, progress, progress. What are your opinions on this? Well on my I'm way just out of left field. Thinking
1: here. back to the very last episode of season one of this podcast where we had the wonderful Katie and Sarah down at Palmerston and the very last something to try we gave before we all disappeared off to the summer was get to know your pupils as people. And I'll be honest, I think I've been in school environments. I've seen school environments where an awful lot of uh, kudos is gained by being able to reel off attendance data, grade data, you know, uh, whether they're above or below their predicted grade, and all that kind of thing. That's seen as something you should be able to do if you're going up, up and away, in, mm. in your career. But actually knowing what football team they support or what they do at the weekend or whether their sister or their mum is not very well or they've got a very long journey to school or that sort of thing. There are some school environments, I think, where that got a bit downgraded in importance. And I think that's that's a little bit sad Mm -hmm. to see, really.
2: Yes, I, I think in a primary setting, I'd recommend that student teachers go out on playground duty not every mm. playground duty but one you know accompany their mentor the class teacher they're working with to go out on playground duty for lunch duties for extracurricular activities if they get a chance to go on trips with the children and residential uh, trips as well it's the chance to see the children in different environments who do they choose to play with are they are they a member of a big group friendship group or are they isolated do they they, they, do they stay on their own and what types of activities do they like to get engaged with Mm. so it's starting to understand what makes these um, young people tick really and also you know what I used to ask myself was have I spoken to every child in my class today have I had a few minutes with every child and if I couldn't remember speaking to some children the next day I would uh, make a point of speaking to them. By the way, my background is primary education. I was a primary teacher before working here. So I'm always asking myself, What sorts of conversations have I had with the children Mm. during the day? Mm. Have I engaged with them all?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point, actually, that we look beyond the classroom for the factors that might explain um, the way our pupils are behaving in our lessons. This is a point that is made in the report, actually, um, and there's a nice uh, kind of quadrant diagram that you'd have to go to the report to have a look at. But what it's highlighting is the interactions between positive and negative influences over behaviour and what it illustrates is how pupils will move between different quadrants depending on the influence of life and educational events so sometimes if life and things that are going on outside of school are starting to to influence their behaviours getting to understand those and then intervening in the realm of control where we have influence as a school we can make a real difference it gives a lovely example of a, of a year 10 pupil who's been disrupting lessons and walking out of class it says it talks about how investigating this behavior the school staff then become aware that she's not made solid friendships so linking in with what you were talking about there you would only really notice that if you saw her on on break time duty if you started to question you know what kind of relationships she had with peers so what was uncovered in this instance is she she has low social confidence and and she's moved school and and you know all of the kind of social issues that that go alongside that alongside implementing sanctions in the school's behavior policy school staff focus on improving the influences on her behavior so they're not just being reactive and you know trying to to combat her negative behaviours are manifesting on a classroom level they're looking more holistically and they discover that actually she's really talented as a musician so she's encouraged to join the school band where she makes more friends and that has you know sort of a a permeating influence on on what happens in the classroom so you know it's borne out in this study what what you've just said there Sean. and I think it's really good advice that we do witness
2: and get to know our pupils in different contexts Absolutely, and that you know we'll have students, children in our classes who exhibit low level uh behavior or and I think it's important to remember that nothing is personal when a child is misbehaving in a class, it's not personal it, um that they're, they're reacting because of of experiences that we might not be aware of or we or we might know about um sh- we shouldn't take it personally. Low-level behaviour is one thing. When we start getting children with more extreme behaviours, as I discussed earlier, that's when we need to sort of investigate a little further. Some children, for example, if they've had an adverse childhood experience, so a stressful or traumatic experience, which might include abuse, neglect, um, household dysfunction, such as growing up with um, substance abuse or mental illness, then th- those behaviours might be more extreme, and we need to t- need to be taking that into account. There's also a theory about attachment, John Bowlby's theory of attachment, and it suggests that children come into the world pre-programmed to make attachments in order to survive, and that you know they need one primary caregiver. Um, And that person is critical to that child's personal development, their emotional and social developments. So for those children who do not receive that attention, that love and care early, early on and have that close bond, well, that could lead to behavioural issues in the classroom. They could exhibit poor behaviour. Uh, but also, they could be withdrawn, they could be clingy, as well as maybe aggressive, but it's it's understanding and knowing what the backgrounds are, and that can help us as teachers then to know it's not personal um, to us, and that we can try and find the best ways through multi-agency working in those situations to support the children.
1: There's a great point in the report, actually, isn't there, which says know the limits of your influence. And I know a lot mm. of our student teachers, they go in, they want to change the world. Won't they? they want to make every pupil's life absolutely perfect. They want their behaviour to be great. It's really important in that huge kind of web of things we've just talk, talked about to know that some stuff we can change really easily as teachers and other stuff sits A little bit outside of our grasp and we can try to influence it we can try to kind of make things happen sometimes through multi-agency work but we're not going to go swinging into our classroom and change all of these people's lives overnight
0: I think that's a really great point. and And actually, it, um, it's even more uh, rationale for collaborating with colleagues. You know, if, you, if you're having an issue with a particular pupil who you know has a very good relationship with another member of staff, or if you're inheriting a class that a different teacher had the year before, who can give you some really useful insight into the sort of themes that Sean was talking about there i think it's really important that we network uh, and with um, and with other practitioners in order to kind of upskill ourselves increase our knowledge and ultimately create better provision for our learners um i just wanted to pick up on something that Sean mentioned there that you may not have heard of before and i would advocate going in and having a look more deeply into which was aces adverse childhood experiences this is research coming out of america i believe um And on page 13 of the report, there's a a basic overview of that research, but it's something that is certainly gathering momentum in Wales and is certainly starting to influence our practice on a a classroom level. So I would urge you to have a look at that. Thinking as well, just to finish off this section on knowing our learners, I think it's also important to know the kind of changes, the kind of physiological changes that they're going through as they age and progress through, through school life. The report, Makes the point about teenage years and during the teenage years, peer influence is more important than any other stage. So, social pressure, whether it's real or imagined, contributes to increased risk taking behavior at this age and can also lead to risk aversion, such as sudden reluctance to answer questions in class. And it's common to be acutely self conscious, particularly in early adolescence 11 to 14. So you know this it struck me there that there's an opportunity when we know this information about what's going on kind of physiologically with with our pupils and 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 how that's affecting them hormonally and and how that's affecting their behaviors i wonder how this could also affect our classroom practice so for example could this knowledge affect your questioning technique with 11 to 14 year olds if they are very risk averse and therefore are unlikely to want to kind of raise their hand and and answer a question take a risk when actually, you know, they just don't want to stick their head above the parapet because of what's going on with their bodies.
1: <laughs> and of course, it's happening earlier and earlier now, isn't it, Sean? So the teenage years are all extending down into primary now for a lot of pupils.
2: Absolutely. Challenges are never ending.
1: <laughs> and if we're looking for things that we can affect, we can't affect the fact that, that these pupils may have had adverse childhood experiences or that their home life is, is not maybe what we would like it to be. But our classroom is the place where we really can change things.
0: Great point. Okay, so getting to know our pupils, getting to know what influences their behaviours is right up front and centre. So for those of you who are out on teaching practice now, observe, ask questions, get to know. Okay, so the second one is teach learning behaviours alongside managing misbehaviour. Teach learning behaviours. This really resonated with me. I, I don't know what my lovely colleagues think, but I, I wonder how much in my early career as a teacher I thought when I was planning my lessons, how is that going to look? What sort of behaviours am I expecting my pupils to demonstrate when they're engaging in that activity? When I'm doing some direct teaching, when I'm coordinating group work, whatever, whatever, whatever the pedagogy, what behaviours and am I explicitly teaching them and should I be?
1: We concentrate so much on the product don't we when we ask our student teachers to think of their success criteria so they want to get something done in the lesson what should it look like if the pupils are successful it's really easy to concentrate on the final product and not think so much about the process and we can also get a bit bound up with the kind of subject discipline nuts and bolts and we we would happily spend ages teaching them knowledge about the subject but We somehow seem to expect them to come pre-programmed with the ability to work well in groups or to behave in the right way or to persevere and be resilient and all of those things. And yeah, the more and more I think about it, the more and more I think that that needs to be thought about just as much as the kind of subject knowledge stuff that we're putting into the lesson.
0: There's a really nice quote here from the report about what we mean by a learning behaviour. It says a learning behaviour can be thought of as a behaviour that is necessary in order for a person to learn effectively in the group setting of the classroom. And if we think about everything that um, Sean just mentioned in relation to kind of the child's background, their upbringing, you know, what kind of environment they are inhabiting at home it becomes even more important that in school we model the learning behaviours that pupils are going to need later on in their working lives in that kind of professional sphere. What do you think about that, Sean?
2: Yes, I think that as teachers, there are certain things we can consider as part of our lessons and as part of our delivery. However, starting with ourselves, I think we need to model an enthusiasm for learning um, that we are lifelong learners ourselves, that we don't know everything um, and that we do have to sometimes go away and read or look things look things up to know, that we have to model being risk takers, that valuing mistakes and that mistakes are fine and that's the only you know that's what needs to happen to be able to learn. So it's about creating an environment where children can feel safe to learn. And I think modelling that as teachers as a starting point is important.
0: I really like the notion as well of, of being able to teach those behaviours and pass them on because there are a lot of terms that get bandied about in relation to learning behaviours. Things like being more resilient being resilient learners um, having a growth mindset and i think the danger is without clear and explicit approaches strategies tools that we can teach learners they could be seen to be a bit of a weapon so you're not you're not being resilient enough and you know it, it could be um what was the word that you used tom uh, we yes, can't, we using can't resilience as
1: as a kind of synonym for compliance. So resilience <laughs> just meaning do as you told. Yeah, you're not being resilient enough because you're not doing what I wanted you to do. And similarly with the growth mindset thing, isn't it? It's it's all great if you if you have come across growth mindset. If you haven't, you can easily find it by looking it up. This idea that that we believe we can learn, we believe our knowledge isn't fixed. You can just end up saying, well, you've got a fixed mindset, you know, as if it as it's just the equivalent of kind of sort it out, pull yourself together and get on with it without giving people some kind of assistance or instructions into how to make that happen
0: absolutely and um, it the report talks about carol dweck's work who is the researcher of and the i guess coined the term growth mindset, the growth mindset if there's any fact checkers <laughs> yeah. out there come come at me if you want but um what it does highlight is that even dweck herself has warned that mindset approaches are difficult to implement she says it's really hard to pass a growth mindset on to others and create a growth mindset culture it's not about educators giving a mindset lecture or putting up a poster it's about embodying it in all their practices and the report says encouraging a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset involves as a teacher having a growth mindset yourself So truly believe that all your students will achieve and improve. And I guess that speaks to, you know, if you've got that class that Mm -hmm. Sean was talking about or year nine, you know, Mm. if you if you've got a fixed mindset about whether they can improve their behaviours or not, or whether you can kind of get them on board and and get them learning, then potentially you're perpetuating those negative behaviours and you're part of the problem. It says praising your students effort rather than the person. The end piece of work or results, you. Uh, so, for example, you've worked so hard on this. You're persevering brilliantly through tough new concepts. <laughs> that mm-hmm. doesn't feel right in my mouth, but um, mm. yeah, ultimately, kind of empowering them to be able to adopt that growth mindset without you going forward, and avoiding fixed mindset labeling that praises intelligence or talent. You're so clever. You're so talented
1: and actually at a personal level as a teacher one of the questions i often ask people who are interviewing the for the course so yeah top tip for anyone listening who's uh, trying to come on the programs they all come in and they say oh i want to be a teacher because i love my subject i love music in my case i want to pass it on to other people and one of the questions i ask is What are you going to do if they come right back at you and don't love music? You know, as Sean says, it's not personal, uh, but when it's something you love, it can feel very personal. I think it's quite easy as a teacher sometimes to take it very badly and get into a fixed mindset. So that ability to kind of pick yourself up after a bad lesson and get back on the horse is one of those fundamental and quite difficult to teach things you need to have, I think, if you're going to work in the classroom.
0: Um, something else that resonated with me in this part of the recommendations to teaching learning behaviours alongside managing behaviour was the, the notion that children can then be empowered to make the right choices or the wrong choices <laughs> but it's about kind of their sense of, of agency and I saw this in the classroom last week I took my group of PGC secondary drama students out into the classroom and the teacher in dialogue with them afterwards mentioned that you know a whole school approach that they're adopting there is about empowering the learners to make choices so she talked about a conversation she'd had with a learner in the lesson where she'd said to this child you could do this and it will have this consequence or you could do this and it will have this consequence it's up to you to choose. So I I like that notion that, you know, we're teaching them about learning behaviours there, teaching them to recognise that they've got choice, that they've got the option to make the right choice, and that their choices have consequences. And what the report says is that pupils who are aware of their own behaviour, which I guess you could say that in that instance, the teacher is making that child aware of their own behaviour and the different directions they could go in. The report says they can then self-regulate and they can deploy coping skills and they'll be less likely to misbehave in school as a result and once once such strategies have been developed and strengthened they turn into essential life skills and help students become motivated and determined to succeed and and that kind of links with this idea of intrinsic motivation they're doing it because they want to do it They're, they're behaving in that way because they want to do it rather than they're being told to
2: by the system absolutely One of the things that I've been looking at in that report was around enabling pupils to access the curriculum and engage with lesson content and participate in their learning. So picking up on what you said, Emma, about how we foster um, lifelong learning and learning behaviours in the children... There's there's this whole debate, isn't there, about traditional and progressive mm-hmm. teaching and whether we should have direct teacher-led sessions or whether it should be child-led. I, I think that in order for the children to become independent, you have to scaffold that. You have to help them to know how to be independent. So, if you, for example, if you've got a group activity, maybe um, something in English or history where they have to work together in a group, It's not perhaps the best way just to say, right, go off in a group and and work on this. Maybe Mm -hmm. better to uh, um, give them roles within the group so that they can be truly collaborative in their activity rather than cooperative and and to uh, properly understand what group working is. So that would be a way of helping the children to be able to participate fully in their learning and have those skills to take forward to other sessions once you've taught it explicitly.
0: I think that's a really great example, Sharon, and and, and, and a, a, a very important one, I think, for our particular subject um, disciplines, because we deal in group work on a regular basis. So, you know, making those behaviours... Explicit, uh, visible, taught, practiced, really, really important. So, I guess ask yourself along the lines of teach learning behaviours alongside managing misbehaviour when you're about to teach a lesson how can I? emphasise those learning behaviours? Where are the opportunities to to explicitly teach and develop and, and scaffold the, the learners' experiences in relation to learning behaviours?
1: It's interesting now to take a moment and consider, especially for our new student teachers, our, our early career teachers, We've done an episode here on behaviour management or how to deal with behaviour in the classroom. And perhaps when people started, they were expecting a massive hat full of sanctions and tips and tricks and strategies and things like that. We've been going for half an hour and all we've done so far is give you a hatful of other things that you can put together before you even have to do any of the stuff we're about to talk about. So I think it's really worth, if you're new to teaching, to just pause and consider how much work you can do before you hand out a single merit or a single telling off or whatever it might be. And and to realise that the groundwork of so much of what we do as teachers is not that stuff
0: totally agree and I, I guess for those of you who are desperate for just give me the strategies <laughs> they're coming now <laughs> they're coming yeah. okay so number three on the report is use classroom management strategies to support good classroom behavior and I got a quote from the report here which says effective classroom management can reduce challenging behavior pupil disengagement bullying and aggression leading to improved classroom climate attendance and attainment some of my student teachers early on can get a bit confused about the difference between behaviour management and classroom management and I guess my interpretation and again come at me if if you think you you think I'm wrong is I would say that classroom management and the thinking behind classroom management kind of comes at the planning stage where you're thinking right how is that learning gonna look and play out in the classroom how am I going to manage the environment how am I going to manage the learners in that environment how am I going to manage the transitions between tasks you know the physical space and how I'm managing the people within that space.
1: I'm going to come at you and say I totally agree with that and that some subjects have to really think about their classroom management because they just have enormous amounts of stuff flying around their classroom. And if you get that classroom management right, then those little gaps where things can happen that you don't want tend to be eliminated and the pace carries on. So I don't think anyone's going to disagree with you on that.
2: Thanks for that. (laughs) And and (laughs) absolutely essential in a foundation-faced classroom that you consider all of that, where you could have quite a large number of other adults that you also have to consider and manage. And you know, there's child-led activity going on, but it's highly structured and there's a lot of thinking that goes on behind that and how the children are going to rotate around and, and experience different aspects of that classroom during the day.
0: Thank you, Sean. Yeah, I I would agree with that. So then I guess when we look at that kind of definition that we've kind of co-constructed there, this point about effective classroom management reducing challenging behaviour and pupil disengagement becomes ever more important. So what I often encourage my student teachers to do when they're planning is to visualise what transitions are going to look like, what activities are going to look like. In drama, we work in a very open and structureless environment but even if you have got tables chairs desks you know how are they going to be set up impose structure on that potentially structureless space how do I want my pupils to enter that space what kind of instructions am I going to need to give them so that they enter the space in a calm focused way that's going to be conducive to really quick learning and engagement
1: Okay, let's talk about the actual behaviour management stuff now because we've been going for quite a while and everybody's desperate to hear some of it. And one of the great bits of advice in the report is a bit of a health warning, which is what exactly the health warning I gave to some of my brand new student teachers the other day, which is that if you are early in your teaching career or if you're new to a school or if you're new to a class, you are going to find behaviour management much more challenging than somebody who's been knocking around there for an enormous length of time. So don't go in there thinking that you're going to be managing behaviour like a pro from day one and don't be afraid to ask for some help.
0: Absolutely. I I think something else that's really important to note is that we've Often in schools, in most schools, we have got a behaviour management policy, which has a very clear progression of sanctions and also a very clear approach to rewards. Um, If you're lucky enough to be in a school where that exists, I think it's really important to have those early conversations with a mentor about how that translates in your particular
2: classroom subject I don't know whether this is as resonant with with primary absolutely resonant I think in those early days and weeks when student teachers are out on their clinical practice placements they need to have a look at the behaviour policy they need to see what is around in the environment in the classrooms that they are in and have the conversations with the mentor as well so I think for consistency for the learners uh, as a student teacher you'd go out you'd see the strategies and the ways of working that your mentor has your class teacher has and you would copy those to begin with so that there's a consistency and a continuity for the children and then as you become more confident and competent you could have conversations with your mentor around trying different approaches with children maybe because of the certain behaviors that they're exhibiting you want to try something else
0: yeah yeah and i i I think that's a really great point um because you want to develop the strategies that kind of sit well with your teacher persona so eventually as you start to progress you're going to develop your own kind of repertoire or your own delivery of those um, behavior management strategies what is really I think a wider point as well and I'm maybe going to be a bit controversial here to to teachers out there supporting student teachers is to be really clear and explicit about when you use the sa- the progression of sanctions and make it okay for your student teachers to use them. I think there can sometimes be a little bit of an unsaid... Culture or unspoken culture in schools that um, yeah we've got a progression of sanctions but we don't really use them and if you're seen to be don't go using below number them, three yeah. don't go beyond
1: number three or yeah. yeah I I got a right telling off on placement from my mentor for going too far up the sanctions once <laughs> yeah. yeah scarred for life I was
0: yeah and we you know I, I, that that we talk about the progression of sanctions and the behaviour management policy policy as being a, a real good scaffold for supporting pupils' behaviour but it's also a really good scaffold for teacher trainees to, to revert to and they need to be able to see that in practice being
2: replicated so they feel like it's okay to use it themselves. Absolutely and I think as a student teacher if you've said you're going to do something you then have to do it Yeah. because if you back away from it you've lost you know there's a danger you'll you lose credibility with this with the children yeah. so whatever you say you do have to have to go through with so you know you do need to consider carefully when you choose to move to the next level of a sanction. But if you're in line with the policy, I think that 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 shouldn't be too much of an issue. It's about expectations. It's about mentors and student teachers having a conversation around expectations, Mm -hmm. but also as a student teacher having a conversation with the children that you're working with around expectations. So if they're in a primary setting, if there's a list of class rules on the wall, you know, referring to those... And using them to to help manage the behaviour and drawing the children's attention back to those, perhaps. Or even better, you know, when you're in in your own classrooms in the future, co-constructing those class rules so that the children's voice comes through and they feel ownership of the way that the classroom is going to operate and run.
0: So similar themes, really, to the previous recommendation about kind of explicitly teaching those behaviours. When using sanctions or when using kind of praise, rewards, it's about again making them explicit, being consistent. Uh, And teaching the pupils that you will be using them, that they have choice um, and that they know what the consequence is. So there's there's no kind of margin of of doubt there that can lead to sort of insecurity and and breed further kind of hostility from our pupils. This is where I'm going to bring up another source that we've mentioned before, Teach Like a Champion, it can be really useful um for new teachers who haven't got those kind of tangible ideas about strategies to use and apply when when you're new and you've got no kind of mental models i'm going to go back to what our, our teach first colleagues told us when we talked about practice a few episodes ago when you've got no mental models, no point of reference for how to make learning behaviors really visible in the classroom they talk about things like least invasive technique so perhaps it might not be best to publicly sanction a pupil perhaps it might be best to very quietly and calmly go over to a pupil when they're working independently and have a a very low-key conversation with that learner again this dovetails with knowing your learners if this is a pupil who you know it could be the most inflammatory thing to do to publicly uh, sanction that pupil least invasive technique bit of side coaching might sort of coerce them back on board without having to even step on the first rung of the ladder of sanctions.
1: Yeah I think with my mentoring head on because I was a a mentor for student teachers before I did this job Things like behaviour management strategies, they're very personal, but also you use them so often as a serving teacher that they can just become a bit like breathing in and out. I mean, if you sort of crunch the numbers, a serving teacher will teach heading towards a thousand hours of lessons a year. And when you're actually trying to explain something to a brand new member of the profession about what you've done and why you've done it, it can be really, really hard to find the words because it's like trying to explain how you breathe in and out or, you know, how how something like that works. And one of the good things about Teach Like a Champion is it just gives names for things and describes them in really simple terms so that people have a shared language that they can talk with and compare one another's experience so it's well worth a look just for that very reason.
0: Another really simple one and um, I wonder what the equivalent might be it might be the same actually in primary Sean, but um, it's about making the behaviours that you want visible so if, if you say to the class write books down pens down fingers on lips so you wouldn't necessarily say that in, in in secondary but in drama context it would be right hands in the air all eyes on me everyone's still nobody moving so those instructions if they follow them are really visible so then for you the teacher just from a logical perspective you can see the individual pupils that aren't
2: following those instructions absolutely yes um you know cl- clear signals for um, getting children's attention back to you when you're, you know, if they've been off on task and you want to draw them back in for a discussion or refocusing the learning. Absolutely. I With, with the class I taught, we practice at the start of the year. We, you know, I'd say everyone talk, okay, and my hand would go up. I might say three, two, one, or tri are in, in the Welsh context, and we'd practice it or clapping a rhythm, shaking a tambourine, whatever it is that you're going to use to practice that first, and then to get get them all back I think in in terms of promoting the desired behaviors I think you need to focus on the behavior that you want some some children if they want attention and they realize that they're getting your attention when they're misbehaving they'll misbehave all the more so perhaps sometimes what you need to do is catch them being good is the phrase that's often used in primary yeah and you focus and you you praise the children who are being good who are you know oh red groups ready thank you red group you know and suddenly all the children are up and sitting up smartly in their chairs with their arms folded or whatever because they want that recognition. Great And point. sometimes tactical ignoring. Mm. So if you've got a class of children on the carpet, you're coming to the end of your introduction and you know really in 20 seconds it's all going to be, be over and though you can dismiss them to tasks. You're not going to start discussing behaviour with the child at that point, you're going to just let it, you know, as long as they're not hurting anyone or themselves, you're going to let it go. You're going to get through your material, um, make sure the children know what they're doing and you're going to go through the right process to get them back to their tasks. So, yes, I think focusing on the desired behaviour mm. and remembering that in any class where you've got some challenging characters, there will be good children Mm. of children who always behave then their behavior is good Mm -hmm. um, and to hang on to that and not let the children with the poorer behavior take over some really great things to try there i
0: I think the the final thing that i would say on that note is to also be very aware of your use of voice your use of body language and your positioning in the room remember that the words that you say how you deliver them can have a, a huge impact on how you manage that class so you know consider where am i standing when i'm delivering this where am i going to position myself in the room at the start of the lesson and and where is it going to you're going to be the best or what will be the best use of voice tone of voice when I'm speaking to this particular learner or giving this um, in instruction so to kind of
2: know your own kind of vocal and physical skills yes. <laughs> at the same time. There is one thing I think is it you know is important as well when you're working with children and perhaps this is easier I don't know I'm not a secondary specialist maybe it's easier in primary but to to try where you can to work with the interests of the children so if you know that you've got a character in your class who's giving you um you know challenging you in in your class in terms of their behavior you know knowing what they're interested in perhaps you can work that into some lessons and i know there are instances where that has been very very successful so a boy was interested in trains so for a few days they did a lot of work around trains and across the curriculum and he was really into it and it, and it, it you know it worked so um i think drawing on children in children's interests and enabling them to participate in the curriculum and, and in, in, um, in developing the, the areas that you're going to look at in the classroom, I think that that can be quite a useful tool for engagement uh, from children.
0: Lovely. Okay, the final recommendation is use simple approaches as part of your regular routine. And what the report does is it it, um, it outlines two such strategies that I guess we could characterise as having very low demands on planning and um very low cost to those head teachers out there and very high return on impact on behaviors for learning the first one is threshold i'm calling it threshold because that's what teach like a champion call it it's not been referred to as this in in the report but if we're going to use terms that are transferable then maybe we'll go with that one so basically what this is is recent research conducted with 11 to 14 year olds suggests that greeting students positively at the classroom door is not only very low cost but has a high yield in terms of improving pupil behavior in the classroom by intentionally promoting and practicing successful transitions into the classroom teachers are empowered to help their students be ready to learn what a seemingly sort of innocuous thing that we do you're talking about kind of it being like breathing if i didn't greet my students at the door i think i i wouldn't be wouldn't be breathing as a teacher but but what
2: a powerful impact is it the same in primary yes i think it goes back to knowing your pupils and developing positive relationships with the children um which will help you then obviously in your delivery of the material um they feel valued they feel that they're recognised, that they they have a presence in in your classroom. You know them. And if you can know their names as well, more challenging in secondary, I know with the numbers of children who pass through your classrooms. But knowing names is just so, so important. It's the one thing you can't take away from a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, it's, it's a very precious thing. Yeah, some really important points there that speak to our kind of innate
0: human emotions, reactions. We've got a smiling face, somebody who knows you, greeting you, can consistently at the door, then you're perhaps going to be more inclined to want to walk into that room and try your best for that person. Okay the other strategy that they mention in the report speaks to what Sean was talking about earlier on about kind of catch them being good. It's the five to one strategy. So in another promising study teachers in disruptive classes of pupils aged between nine and 14 years old were trained over two 45 minute sessions to increase their use of behaviour specific praise. Teachers were given reminders at intervals to praise students alongside training focused on the magic five to one ratio of positive to negative interactions the five to one ratio theory is that for every criticism or complaint the teacher issues they should aim to give five specific compliments approval statements and positive comments or non-verbal gestures and this yielded some really important benefits in increasing um, positive interactions between pupils and actually sean you had a point to make on this about where inevitably sometimes relationships regardless of the the amount of positive praise we give in the moment relationships can break down and a lot of schools take a restorative approach to behavior management and i wonder if you'd like to share some of the some of the thoughts that you had on that
2: yes i'm aware through My work in going out to support student teachers and mentors in school, that a restorative justice approach is is out there being used in some primary schools. And it encourages pupils to be uh, self-reflective of their own behaviours. So there's a very useful pamphlet available online. I believe it's been published by Cambridge University. And it talks about what restorative justice approaches are and compares them with authoritarian approaches. So, for example, an authoritarian approach would focus on rule breaking, whereas restorative looks at the harm done to individuals. Authoritarian focuses on blame or guilt, where restorative looks at responsibility and problem solving. Um, authoritarian might give a punishment to deter that behavior in the future but in restorative approach um, it looks at repairing at at dialogue negotiation apology and reparation and in the schools that I visited where that approach is being used it's 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 very successful Mm. so I think that is you know it encourages the children to think about their actions mm. and the impact that they have on others mm. um mm. so it draws on that human uh, aspect again that, that you were mentioned earlier emma
0: yeah absolutely because ultimately we're people the kids are people who have emotions who sometimes act up so do we you yeah. know i yeah I, i've i've heard even of pupils having kind of restorative sessions with their teachers, you know, so that they so both the teacher and the learner are, are reflecting um, in, in a view to kind of restore that relationship and, and restore justice um, to whatever the situation that arose in the first place was. So we've taken a real deep dive into um lots of different approaches that have come out of this report but ultimately I think a big message that's coming through for you student teachers out there is to a get to know what the policy is in your school but b question and observe what that actually looks like on the ground so be inquisitive be critical thinkers talk to your mentors ask what that looks like in practice Get to know the learners, ask plenty of people about them and witness them in lots of different contexts. So a bit of reconnaissance over the next few weeks for you going forward.
1: So as uh, we always have on the podcast, we've got our regular short slots and we're doing them in reverse order today. We normally leave something to try near the end, but we just gave it to you. uh, Something to try, because if the EEF, the mighty EEF, have told us that threshold, meet and greet your pupils and five to one, More positive comments than negative ones Uh, has such a great effect for such little outlay. Why wouldn't you make that your something to try uh, for this episode? So something interesting. We're going to have to uh, big the EEF up again, aren't we, Emma?
0: I think so. Did you? Did you bring some stuff, Sean? Have you got something to try? Just well, think, I, I'm just, I mean, I'm just thinking. Well, I was actually, I was yet? actually
2: going to recommend your podcast with Dr. Judith Neen, oh, where you're looking wow. at pioneering <laughs> the new curriculum for Wales. Oh, oh you. that's very kind. Um,
1: I haven't listened to that.
2: <laughs> go if you haven't listened to, to it yet, yeah. go for it. For me, oh. it's prompted me to think further about how we work with our student teachers to prepare them to be effective teachers of the expressive arts Area of learning and experience. That's Aww, very kind thanks, of you. Sean. Thanks.
1: Well, we'll be all magnanimous in that case, <laughs> since we've had our own <laughs> podcast plugged by Sean. We're gonna spread the love a little bit and point out that the EEF themselves have got a podcast yes, as well.
0: They have, they've got some excellent episodes. I believe it's called Trialed and Tested. I think you said that yeah, already, did not you, Tom? Yeah. Trialed and Tested. I think they've only got three episodes so far, but they are very, very good. One on metacognition, there's one about um good practice in teaching science. And and a really recent one that I found fascinating was about uh, working memory. Um, so have a listen to those. And um, I'm sure there'll be a behaviour one out there at some stage too. And um, that leads us to something interesting that you've been reading, Sean. Have you have you got something
2: to share that, uh, that you've been kind of mulling over? Well, just recently, very interesting report on BBC News, actually, about the lack of state funding for the arts in school and the decline in the numbers of students taking GCSE arts subjects, and of course my subject is music, so I was particularly interested in that. And it led me to have a look, because I'm more primary focused, but to have a look at the what are the stats in Wales for GCSE uptake, you know, for music, and sadly that's they're declining too. So, yeah, going forward with, in our Curriculum for Wales, our new curriculum, it be interesting to see what the impact of having six areas of learning and experience will be on those GCSE uptake in the future. Yeah,
1: yeah, some scary figures there. The last thing to ask—I don't know if you have anything for this, Sean a, a tip for how to uh, maintain your well-being.
2: Well, there are a number of things I could say, really, <laughs> um, but I think top of my list is sleep. Um, I think for student teachers, there is the tendency to want to get everything absolutely perfect and you work into the wee small hours. And the, the downside of that is you go to school and you're tired and if you're doing that night after night, you just don't operate as well. Um, in the class. And it's not fair on you as a student teacher or the children. So have a cut off time when you stop working, have a cool down routine, you know, I don't know whether you have a bath or you listen to some nice relaxing music or read a book or put some lavender under your pillow, whatever it is, um, to make sure that you get sufficient sleep. Very good tip. Very good
0: tip. And uh, one that I should probably take on board a bit more myself. (laughs) No more caffeine after seven (laughs) o'clock. All right. Well, all that remains to say is the obvious thank yous. But can I just say from the bottom of our hearts, Sean, thank you for coming on our our humble podcast. And we look forward to having you at some point again in the future. Happy teaching everybody and good luck with your behaviour management. That was Emma and Tom's PGC podcast presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Sean Davis-Barnes. The report we discussed today is Improving Behaviour in Schools by the Education Endowment Foundation. And we also mentioned Teach Like a Champion by Doug Lemoff as a useful resource for additional classroom and behaviour management strategies. We're all off to practice our threshold technique before cracking out the chamomile tea and catching some well-deserved Zs. Until next time... Take care and enjoy teaching.